Great afternoon. You are in the fast lane with Sarah Jane and my guest today, Christine Hammond. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much. Christine is a mental health influencer, author of The Exhausted Woman's Handbook, which we all could read, Abuse Exposed, Identifying Family Secrets that Breed Dysfunction, uh, and she's also a guest speaker. So she has, and if you go on her website, she has a a lot of credentials. So we are speaking to a very intelligent woman today. So thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this today. So I've never spoken to anyone who specializes in trauma and narcissism. So first of all, I want to know how you got into this. Well, interestingly enough, um, it started because of family. Uh, When I was in getting my master's degree. And all of a sudden I started listening to the professor start talking about narcissism in one of my classes. And he went through all of the traits of it. And it was like a light bulb went off in my head. And I immediately, I recognized half of my family in that. And um, so then I went back and spoke with my mother about it. Sure enough, my father had been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder at some point in time. And, um, and then found out my grandmother and then so on. And I just, so once I started to realize that that's what I was dealing with in my family, I also started to understand that I had a propensity for being able to work with those people, uh, meaning that they didn't irritate me the way that um, other clients might've irritated me. I was able to handle the situations and deal with them in such a way that affected some level of change because it's very difficult to get them to change or to do anything um, other than what they're very headstrong about. And so I started in my practice and I didn't know I was going to do personality disorders, but I had a couple of clients who were in that category. I was very successful with them. And then of course, other people started referring them to me. And next thing I know, I, I would say the majority of my clients have a personality disorder of some sort. And that's just the area that I focus on. It brings about a lot of high conflict, which for whatever reason I can handle quite well. And so uh, my whole entire practice is generated around that area. And it has been um, a very interesting journey, uh, also very rewarding um, because there's nothing quite like being able to see progress in a family unit that has been struggling for so long. So usually when someone comes to you, do they know that they are a narcissist or do they just know they have problems? What, what normally do people walk in with to your office? So some people, yes, they do know that they've been diagnosed by somebody as having a personality disorder. And so they, they come straight to me um, because whatever therapist that they were dealing with doesn't deal with that area. Um, And so, yes. So in some cases they do know that they have the disorder in other cases, they don't. Um, They've just gone through a slew of therapists and been unsuccessful in trying to get any type of help whatsoever. And then there's also, of course, a lot of narcissists don't like to admit that they need any help. And so they're super reluctant to coming in and actually saying, hey, I need some help in this area. So um, what happens is family members will start to see me because they recognize that they are living with and or working with or having to deal with a narcissist in their life. And then that family member um, kind of ropes them in to coming in to see me and meeting me at some point in time. And then once they meet me, then they stay usually. 
So can you spot this in children or is this mainly something that comes out as an adult? Because being a mom of three boys, Mm -hmm. are there signs that a person should be looking for? Sure. So like I I would also say that every teenager looks like a narcissist. So I will just start off with that because (laughs) I think that's just teenage behavior, um, generally speaking. So um, so they all look that way. Officially, we cannot diagnose until 18. But here's the irony of the diagnosis. The irony is that we can't diagnose until 18, but we have to have five years of like some type of evidence of this behavior and this being a pattern prior to the age of 18. So the weirdness is like for five years, parents are like, what the heck is going on? Like, what am I dealing with? And they don't really even know what they're dealing with. The problem is, is that we have to wait till 18 because they are not developed. Their personality isn't fully developed. And it goes back to Eric Erickson's eight stages of psychosocial development. The fourth stage, of course, being identity versus role confusion, which occurs between age 12 and 18. Although I would say in the U.S., for whatever reason, we don't seem to grow adults by 18. They seem to be like not really fully adulting until somewhere in their 20s. And so there's an argument that could be made that we shouldn't even really diagnose until they're in their 20s um, with a personality disorder because they're still not acting and behaving like adults until that stage. Mm -hmm. So wherever they are on the spectrum, we usually like to see them in adult form because once you become an adult, your personality is pretty much not going to change. Like you, you are going to be who like all of these years have come, that have um, come behind you have already started to form and develop, whether it's through nature or nurture um, or just a decision that you've made by yourself um, that you want to be a certain way because you've idolized somebody and want to be just like them. Uh, whatever reasons that your personality sets in stone. And so, but it is set in stone by sometime in your adulthood, early adulthood. And then from there, that's where we diagnose. So for a mom who has three boys, unfortunately, no, we can't diagnose, but we can start to see some of the behaviors. Um, The lack of empathy would probably be the most concerning behavior. So if you start to see that in your children, I would say that that is that is your big red flag that something is going on. Um, the very selfish and arrogant behavior that, that sometimes, but that sometimes comes with just age and immaturity. That's that can be part of it. Uh, there's a sense of entitlement that seems to be very strong. Again, that, that could be culture. Um, so we have to dismiss what's culture from like what's like really going on um, it, it, with this somebody's personality. So it would be entitlement without cause. Like I I would say like a child growing up in an underprivileged neighborhood. So they don't have cause to be entitlement. And yet they have that very strong characteristic. So I would look for it from that aspect, not necessarily we grow up in an affluent household. And so they have a sense of entitlement that could be environment. It could be, you know, parents upbringing. So, so you have to kind of separate out what is the natural organic environment for the child and why could they be acting that way organically from like what is truly different and separate um, from the different aspects of the traits or characteristics of narcissism. So then is this something, if your parent is narcissistic, is that often going to transfer onto a child? 
can. So um, like I say that narcissism is uh, composed of three parts. So first is nature, which is your like DNA. So like if we look inside people's brains, like literally like, right, we draw little lines inside their heads, we can see empathy lighting up on scans, on brain scans. And so the lack of ability for certain parts of the brain to light up can be a DNA issue. It can also be head trauma. It could be any one of a number of other things that could have contributed to it, but it can be a DNA issue. So certain of the characteristics are just passed down through the gene pool. But then of course you have the environment, which is the nurture side of it, which is like a parent who, for instance, doesn't show empathy. I'll just use that as an ongoing example. A parent who doesn't show empathy to a child, then when a child is um, upset or crying or showing empathy, the parent won't reward that behavior or will punish a behavior for the child acting empathetic. Um, and so then the child starts to learn through the environment that they are in that this is not acceptable or normal or okay. And then, and then we look at choice, which is the last option because as teenagers, they try on hats of who they want to be. And so one day they're goth, the next day they're like the athlete of the year, the next time they're a nerd. Like, so they try on different aspects of their own personality. And, and as they're doing that, they're deciding what do I want to absorb as to who I am. And, and so when they do that kind of, when they actually pick and choose the things if they pick and choose, for instance, a famous sports hero that they're really like enthralled with, well, if that sports hero doesn't show empathy um, and that's very obvious, then they might choose to not be that way because they are trying to emulate themselves like someone else. So it's a three-part answer. There's a DNA aspect to it. So that's the nature. Then there's the nurture. That's the environment and growing up. There could also be trauma that happens to a child that then brings out the narcissism that might be very latent. And then the last would be the choice option. So not always does, just because you have a narcissistic parent, does that mean that you're going to have a child, but you've increased the probability that that will happen. Do, do narcissists attract each other or not so much? So they can, um, I, a lot of some narcissists marry narcissists, right? Because in, 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 and the reason they do that is because they can get away with more stuff. They live very separate lives. So, so like if a narcissist marries a narcissist, it's not an intimate connection. Um, it's very much like a, uh, we're just doing life together, but we're not really in love with each other kind of thing. Like, like we're just like coexisting. There's a lot of cheating that goes on in those households. Um, there and but they don't care and and so it's it's a marriage of convenience more than it is a marriage of love and genuine care and concern for one another. Um, so, but narcissists, generally speaking, like love and look for two different types of personalities. One is a dependent personality. So those people have dependent personality disorder. They have a very hard time leaving somebody. Like once they've latched on to somebody, no matter how abusive or how terrible they get treated, they have a really, really hard time detaching. They have a very, very hard time separating. And the other personality that a narcissist loves is a codependent. So somebody who loves feeding the ego of the narcissist, and then the narcissist is very happy to constantly get that feeding. And so, so it goes back and forth with that because narcissists are very attention seeking. And so they need somebody who will help, who will supply that on a daily basis, that constant attention. And unfortunately, codependents do that quite nicely. Hmm. So is it 
better to for a person to be in a uh, a too narcissist relationship because the things that I, and the things that I've seen on narcissism, you know, a lot of people will put up a little um, post about, you know, explaining what a narcissist is. I, I don't have the knowledge of this. And do they still have the outbursts when they're with another narcissist? Or is that mainly with someone that they're easily controlling? They can have the outbursts with the other, but, but usually it's like two bulls fighting each other. Right. And so like, all they do is they just lock their, you know, horns in with each other and, and, and then they just don't move. And so, so that's, that's how you, that's how I would define like two narcissists going at each other that they're literally like two bulls locking horns with each other and they're just going to fight it to the death. Like, um, so, so they can have that outburst. Um, but most of the time the outbursts are in an effort to control or dominate somebody else. Like it's done for that reason. And I also want to say like, if you find yourself married to somebody who's narcissistic, it doesn't mean you have to end your marriage. It just means you have to know what you're married to and ha- and accept like what they are and accept who they are and and that you are not going to get, perhaps if you're codependent, the true intimacy and connection that you may long for, you are not going to get being married to a narcissist and you have to accept that and be okay with it. If you're not okay with it, then that's a whole other ball game. but some people are okay with that. So with the, with the bulls fighting, you don't have that honeymoon phase after the outburst. Uh -uh. Okay. So will you describe some of that, um, like how a typical relationship is going to be with like a narcissist and a codependent? And and this could be, this doesn't necessarily have to be a marriage. This could be uh, a parent, a child, uh, anything. Yeah. 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 Probably the hardest ones are where we're talking about an adult child and a parent. Okay. That's probably the hardest relationship because when the adult child is diagnosed as, or has narcissistic traits, the way they treat their adult parent is, is horrible. So, so that's probably the hardest, that is probably the hardest relationship dynamic, but it could also be somebody at work. Um, you know, so like you could have a narcissistic boss unfortunately they do quite well, like, you know, because they are so dominant and they are so like very pushy and very tend to be very aggressive. There's by the way, two different types of narcissists we'll talk about in a second, but like they, they tend to be loud and out front and in front of everybody else. And so because of that, they also tend to rise in the corporate ladder very quickly and very fast. Um, And in our medical profession, actually also um, there's a, a bunch of a bunch of narcissists in the medical profession because the medical training like almost like encourages that to some degree. Like you have to be in charge. You have to be very much, I can do it. I'm God-ish like in, in, you know, in control of other people's health and, and very secure and comfortable in what you're saying and what you're doing. The sense of superiority, which comes with like a medical degree, a lot of times, like, so, so it's very prevalent in certain areas of existence. So putting all of that aside, like, what are we talking about? What does the cycle look like? So the way I describe it is, it's an, I call it the narcissistic abuse cycle. And it starts as simple as this. There's like four parts to it. The first part is like at the very beginning, the narcissist gets irritated about something. So we'll use the example that you're at a party 
um, with your narcissistic spouse and, and, and you just make some offhanded comment about, um, you know, something that's going on with them. And the narcissist sees that as embarrassment. You have embarrassed me in front of these people, right? These are the words that they're going to say. They uh, almost exactly, right? You have embarrassed me. How dare you embarrass me like that? Okay. All right. So that's, that, that is like the instigating point, right? So then what happens next? That's, that's number two. So if you look at a clock, so the 12 o'clock is going to be the beginning of the cycle. So that's the you've embarrassed me incident. Then comes like a three o'clock would be the next thing. So that's the step two is now they react. You've embarrassed me. How dare you treat me like that? Don't you know that you're not supposed to talk about me like this? I've told you this before. You've humiliated me. I can't believe you've done this. I'm never going to be able to talk to these people. And so they start going off on you, right? And so so during the next phase is the anger outburst that you're going to get from the narcissist. The good parts about narcissists is that they tend to do the same exact pattern over and over again. So if you can detach yourself from the whole thing for a hot minute, you will see that they will twist the truth on you. They'll name call. They'll do several abusive patterns, one right after the other. And you can almost call it out. They'll gaslight you. They'll do all kinds of different things to abuse you. So the person, the spouse who has done this incident is now mortified, right? They feel very small. But, but, but the narcissist doesn't know how to stop, right? So they don't like stop at like, you've embarrassed me, how dare you? They keep going and going and going. And so at some point in time, the poor spouse now retaliates, right? So that's step three. That's the six o'clock position that we're looking at in the cycle. And so they retaliate and they say something back. I can't believe that you would say this about me. I have never embarrassed you before. I've never intended to embarrass you. I'm not doing what you're saying that I'm doing. You are being such a bully to me. And so they say something back, right? They're trying to defend themselves and they say something back, okay? And the narcissist listens to it, right? Because the narcissist wants to get them to the point where they're now upset, right? And they say something that they probably shouldn't say so that we can move to step number Three. Okay. So step number three is the nine o'clock position. And that's where the narcissist is like, see, this is what I'm talking about. You're so abusive to me. I can't believe that you would call me this. I can't believe what you, all of a sudden the narcissist becomes the victim in this. Now, remember the narcissist started this. They started the whole entire cycle. They got upset. They didn't handle it well. They acted abusively. The spouse was just trying to defend themselves, but probably went too far. So then the narcissist now becomes the victim in all of this. The spouse, because most likely they're codependent, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I, you're right. I should have never said that to you. Now the narcissist is happy. Because they've gotten the spouse to apologize. They don't ever have to apologize. They're not going to go back and then apologize for it. And so now we reset and we go back to number 12, where we're just waiting for the next incident for them to get upset over. And so it's this entire, that's what the abuse cycle looks like when you're dealing with a narcissist. And you can play that out at work. You can play that out in multiple different ways. Um, but that's that's what it looks like for it the um, narcissist and for whoever it is, that's their target. This sounds exhausting. It is. Yes. <laughs> so how, when you say that people can save their marriage, 
how do you how do you save that? How can you how can you go through those cycles over and over again? So when I'm working with somebody who is either married to a narcissist or has a narcissistic child or a narcissistic boss, I, I tell them to stop it at number two, right? You don't. So in other words, you hear them ranting, raving, doing whatever, but you don't retaliate. You walk away in that moment. You, um, you don't absorb what they're saying. You don't allow it to affect you and impact you because that's how you stop the, the whole other side of the cycle from happening again. And when the narcissist realizes that, that them having, and I call it an adult temper tantrum, <laughs> that them having like an adult, cause that's what it looks like, you know? So that when they're having their adult temper tantrum and they're not getting their feeding from it, because remember, it's all about attention. All the narcissist really wants is attention. So they're doing this and they'll do it, whether if they can get positive attention, they'll go for it or negative attention, if they can go for it. If you think about a two-year-old child, you know that when they're throwing a temper tantrum, they're doing it and they don't care what kind of attention they get either. They just want your attention in that moment. And if you ignore that attention, they eventually stop. Same thing is true for a narcissist. They're just grown up two-year-olds. Wow. So then if, if you have these tendencies, is this what you do in all of your relationships or just your close ones? You'll do various forms of it. Um, so, so what winds up happening is like, you can be very charming as a narcissist, right? So most narcissists have like this ability to charm a lot of people. Like they're very, very good at it. They're talented at it. It comes naturally to them. And so they're charming people. And because they're charming all of these people, like they don't necessarily act up with like the general population. Their relationships are what I call a mile wide and an inch deep. Like they don't, they have a lot of relationships, but it only goes that far. And it doesn't ever really like, so as soon as anything like creaks below the surface of the inch deep, those are the ones in which that they will act that way. The rest of the relationships are never going to see it. And, and, and if you try to say that this is going on to you, people will be like, what are you talking about? They're the nicest person ever. I've never seen them act like that. They're so awesome. What do you say? I think the world, they're, they're the most godly people. I can't believe you're saying this. That's usually what you get. Wow. I had gone, I have done therapy for quite a while. And I went in there one day and I said to him, do you think I'm a narcissist? And he laughed and he's like, no, why? And I was like, I don't know, because it's a narcissist, you know, like demand attention and whatever. And I take my relationships pretty seriously. Like yeah. I want to have a good relationship because I want my children to see it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so he kind of laughed at me and I was like, well, I know that's probably a silly question, but I don't know. Like, I want to make sure I'm not doing something detrimental to my children. Yeah. But do you think that this ever is a scapegoat for people who maybe are in a bad relationship? You mean like calling somebody a narcissist? Oh yeah. 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 So like usually when somebody comes in to see me for the very first time in therapy and they say, I'm married to a narcissist. The first thing that goes through my head is, are you the narcissist? (laughs) 
because like sometimes that's the case. Like they come into therapy claiming that they're married. So they're projecting, right? Their behaviors onto the other person. And so they're projecting all of it onto the other one because they want to come into therapy and hear all about how wonderful they are and how great they are. And, oh, you poor thing that you're going through all of this. It's so much. And most therapists, because they're empathetic and sweet and kind, like they fall for it every single time. Right. And so like, they're like, oh, I can't believe you're going through this instead of like objectively looking at exactly what's happening in this situation. And, and so the first thought that goes through my head when somebody says I'm married to a narcissist is, are you the narcissist? And so I'm checking for that, right? Almost immediately at the very beginning, I'm like looking for it. I'm like seeking it out. And I can usually tell pretty quickly, narcissists will reveal themselves. And so like perfect examples of what it looks like when a narcissist comes, you know, to a therapist's office, um, cause I have some lovely examples of this is, um, I, so I had one person come in one time and he put his hand out to me, um, to shake, this is back when, in the day when we were shaking hands, like pre COVID, right? So this is not post COVID. This is like pre COVID. So he put his hand out to me to shake my hand. Um, and, and then immediately as I put my hand towards his, he pulled his hand back and, and I was like, okay, that's weird. And, and he looks right out at me and says, I'm not going to shake your hand because the last time I shook your hand, I had a heart attack. And I was like, okay. So I was like, so I, I never met the person before. So I, I didn't know what the heck he was talking about. And so I was like, all right. And I just like played, it was like, no big deal. I said, come back into my office. And so he came back into my office and he tried to sit in my chair. Like as every therapist, like you know, every therapist has their chair, right? You know, and it's so obvious because we have coffee right next to it. We have like our computer set up or lap or iPad. I have my iPad right there. So it's so obvious my chair, right? And the sofa is like right across from me. And, you know, and so he tries to sit in my chair. I'm like, no, 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 that chair is, is my chair. You, you can sit over on the sofa. And he like gave me kind of like this scoff thing. And then he, he waited to see, um, because he wanted me to sit down first. So it's a game of chicken, right? Like he who sits first loses. Like you got to think of it in the in terms like that. My narcissistic dad taught me these uh, little things that I had no idea that it was actually a real thing, but he taught me this. And so, so I didn't sit down. I waited for him to sit down first. And once he sat down first, then I sat down. And then I asked him, I said, so, so I completely ignored what had happened in the waiting room, right? And so I went on to talk about other things, you know, as if it didn't like, as if that didn't even happen. And I could see him fuming right at this moment because he's so mad because he's so dying to tell me like what the story is, you know? And, um, and so at that moment I knew he was narcissistic. And so the story was that he had met me at a speaking engagement and that I was doing, and he had shook my hand. And later on that night, he had a heart attack. And so he was like, he is so over-dramatizing, right? It's just <laughs> unbelievable. So, so that's a perfect example of somebody who's very narcissistic. Like he's trying to command control of the situation, wanted to dominate the talk and what we talked about, wanted to sit in my chair because he's special and he should be sitting in my chair. Like all of these things are very characteristic without him ever saying a word. I knew immediately that he was narcissistic, that that's just a telltale sign of what they look like. So did he, he was there because he knew he was narcissistic or what was he there for? Uh -huh. If you were to give him a heart attack, what is he there for? Yeah. 
<laughs> he was there because his wife told him that she was going to divorce him if he didn't come into counseling. Did you help him? I did. Yes. They're still married, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. He was a tough one. How can you disassociate from this? How can you deal with people that kind of try to just mess with your mind every single day and you can just go home and be fine? How do you, do you need a therapist yourself? <laughs> yeah. Well, I do have people that I talk to. Yes. And so I, I so that that's very helpful for me because I, believe every therapist should be in therapy because, you know, like how else do you handle it? Um, but I also have very, very good boundaries. And so, um, when I am done with a client, I really like, I do my notes in session. And so when I am done with a client, I am literally done with the client and I close up my iPad because I use an iPad to take notes and I close up my iPad and that's it. And then I move on to the next one. And I work really hard at not taking them home with me. And so, and not thinking about it or mulling over it. And so I have some very good skills around that as well. Just lots of boundaries that you have to set with this type of population because, because they will, narcissists very historically try to go past your boundaries. Like they're constantly trying to push a boundary. They're constantly trying to see what they can get away with. And so you have to have very, very good guidelines. Hmm. So some people think, and I've heard this a lot, and I've addressed this many times before on my podcast, but a lot of people think that when you have therapy, you're weak or something is wrong. And I like to tell people that is not the case. I love going to therapy. I, I also like when you said that a lot of them are fluffy because I don't go to one that will say, Sarah, how does this make you feel? He doesn't <laughs> care how I feel. He wants right. to know what I think and how I'm going to act, react to it. Right. So how does a person, so everyone knows if you need therapy, it is not a weakness because no. if something's wrong with my car, I'm taking it to a mechanic you know, right. I'm not going to doubt like, oh, my horrible car. This is, no, you, everyone needs help. So how does a person find someone, um, a, someone good, you, you know, because you get your good ones, you get your bad ones. You, you do. Think? So I usually recommend that people look at psychology today. Um, they have a great referral network um, that you can look at and with lots of specialties and a variety of people who do take insurance, don't take insurance. Um, but I like some type of referral source like that is, or directory like that is probably one of your best ways rather than just pulling some random person out of like whatever insurance, um, you know, approval list you get. Uh, the other way is like to talk to people and find out who that they go see. Most of the people who come see me come see me because they're referrals, they're referrals from attorneys, they're referrals from other therapists, they're referrals from my other clients. Um, so I would say probably somewhere in the avenue of 80% of my clients come from a referral basis. Um, and, and that's, that's usually the best way because, you know, if you've seen somebody who's good and you know how they've helped you, um, mm -hmm. and, and that makes all the difference in the world. So find somebody that you trust, that, you know, that you like, see what they have to say, um, and go try that person out. And not every therapist is for everybody. I, I'm a very direct therapist. I tell my clients that all the time. If you don't like direct, don't come see me. Like I, cause I'm just going to tell you what I think mm -hmm. and, and I'm not going to hold back. And so, um, a lot of people don't care for that and they do want more fluff and, but I'm not a fluffy therapist. So, um, so not every therapist is for everyone. And, 
And you really have to find one that works for your personality. So how often do you think it happens where you have someone come in for their initial visit and you're thinking, no, this is not going to be a good thing. Do you, are you right up front? Do you tell them? Oh yeah. I'll refer them to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. See, I think that is the sign of a good provider right there. And I have people come into my office who, so I'm a chiropractor, but there's plenty of times I will say, you need to see X, Y, and Z. You need to do X, Y, and Z. If you go somewhere and they think that, and they tell you they're going to solve all your problems, I never think that's a good sign. It's terrible. Yes. No, it's absolutely terrible. Yes. I absolutely refer. I have a great referral network and I send people to other places all the time because I really truly believe like we can't, we can't work with everybody. Like that's why everybody is different and has different personalities. And, um, and I'm not a good fit for a lot of people. And anyone listening to this could actually contact you for therapy, correct? Yes, they can. Yes. Because you do online I do do online therapy. Yes. I have people all over the world. Yes. Cool. So do you find it's easier to meet someone in person and and get that energy from them? Or is it it just like this? Are you doing good? Unfortunately, COVID cured me of that. So like I, I, prior to COVID, I would tell you, I always want to meet the person, you know, at least once face to face. Um, but now because of what we, what's happened with COVID, I, you know, that was not possible. And so I had to really develop those skills and how to pick up on things and nuances about people, um, through using zoom. And so I've gotten good at it now and I'm just as comfortable on zoom as I am meeting somebody in person now. Uh, so this is kind of circling back, but you can save a relationship with a narcissist, but what happens when you can't? Because I have read different things and I think, oh, I would just, I would not do that. I wouldn't put myself through that constant abuse. How difficult is it to get a divorce from one? Oof. Well, not just that, but I mean, if it's your boss, you can quit. If it, you know, if it's a spouse, you can get divorced, but if it's uh, your parent, if it's a sibling, if it's your child, you're stuck, right? Yeah. So let's talk about all of those things. So what I would say is if you're realizing that your boss is narcissistic and you just can't stand it, like always, always, always leave on good terms with a narcissistic boss. Do do whatever you have to say, whatever, like, I mean, you don't lie, but like, like say whatever you have to, in order to get out of the situation, don't call them a narcissist on your way out. Don't do anything to cause harm on the way out. Just exit gracefully and quickly. That that's the best way to handle it. When you're dealing with a narcissistic boss, when we're talking about a narcissistic spouse, getting a divorce from them is tricky because a narcissist doesn't like to be rejected. It goes against the whole attention-seeking, deep-rooted insecurity that they have inside themselves. And so if you reject them, if you file for divorce against your narcissistic spouse, all hell will break loose. And and I'm not just saying that to be dramatic. I'm saying it because I've seen it happen before uh, on more occasions than I care to. They, They get so angry that you could possibly be leaving them. How dare you do this to them? And- Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated.